I'm reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. One of the great desires of the mystics, no matter their religious background, is to see God. Mystics have always yearned for what is called the beatific vision. For some, they desire just the feeling that they are swallowed up in God, to have the sense of being one with God. Others really want the kind of experience where they see a visual image of God, perhaps a king sitting on a throne, or perhaps just some kind of vision of a bright light. But many of the wiser mystics warned against seeking such visions because in their own experience they had found that the visions were often hallucinatory, induced by a kind of self-hypnosis or even sensory deprivation. Almost anyone can have a vision of God or a godlike being. The Native Americans, through rituals of fasting and other kinds of physical deprivation, frequently had visions of their gods or symbols of their gods. And the mystics also found that their visions, especially if they were accompanied by voices, were very often not to be trusted. And of course, some mentally ill people have visions of God all the time. We have to be careful that our vision of God is not really a symptom of a mental illness or a hallucination. So when the Christian speaks of seeing God, he has something in mind other than having a hallucinatory vision of God or a strange sensation of mind or body. So when our Lord says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, what kind of vision of God did he have in mind? In what way does the Christian see God? In this world, our vision of God is a vision of faith, not actual sight. It is true that the Christian has seen God, but he has seen him with the eyes of faith, that's a very real sight and far more convincing than a physical sight. After all, if I had a vision where I had seen a physical manifestation of God, I would always have to ask myself, was it real? Was I dreaming? Was it the pepperoni pizza I had last night? Was it wishful thinking or a hallucination? How could we be sure? But the vision of faith, on the other hand, is certain. The writer to the Hebrews said, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. People often say, well, I won't believe until I see evidence. But according to scripture, faith is the evidence. You see, faith is more than just hoping that something is true. Faith is certainty. Faith is substance. The way we think of faith is that it's just wishful thinking. No, faith is substance. It is the most real thing in the universe. It is the evidence of things not seen. The writer to the Hebrews speaking about Moses said, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now how can you see the invisible? By very definition, we can't see the invisible. If we see it, it's visible. Then how did Moses see the invisible God? by faith. So it is by the eye of faith that we see God. And because we have faith, we see God everywhere in everything. 
I'm reminded of a story about a little girl who went to her father and said, Daddy, can you see God? And he said, No, no one can see God. So she went to her mother and said, Mommy, can you see God? And the mother said, No, God is invisible. You can't see him. And she went outside to where her grandfather was sitting. And she said, Granddaddy, can you see God? And her grandfather looked around and saw all the trees, the flowers, the sky, and clouds. And he said, You know, it's hard to see anything else. And that's the way it is for the Christian. He sees God everywhere. His eyes have been opened and he sees the glory of God revealed in all the created order. There's an old gospel hymn that has the line, My eyes behold his beauty in everything I see. David had that in mind when he said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Of course, we see God also in the pages of Holy Scripture. This blessed book, written by God himself, tells us who God is and what he is like. It tells us of all his dealings with mankind. Now, why is it that some people look at the Bible and feel that there is nothing special about it? Why is it that some people can look at it and think that it is filled with mistakes and contradictions? The answer is lack of faith. Faith is the only way we can be convinced that this book from cover to cover is the Word of God. Now, I can argue with people and prove from science and textual criticism that the Bible is the Word of God, but even with my best proofs, I can only make a person 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent certain that the Bible is the Word of God. But there will still be that last little lingering doubt in the back of his mind. What can give a person the absolute certainty that this is the Word of God? The Old Westminster Confession of Faith has a wonderful section on Holy Scripture that tells us how we know that the Bible is the Word of God. And it lists the following things as proofs that the Bible is the Word of God. The testimony of the church, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof. So, with all of that, anyone should be convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. But the confession goes on to say, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Why do I believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, for all the reasons the Westminster Confession enumerates. But I am certain that it is the Word of God only because the Holy Spirit gave me the ability to believe that it is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit had to give me faith but since the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that this is the Word of God, then we see God on every page, in every line, so that when we read this book, we're not just reading a book, we're seeing God. God revealed in these holy pages. As we sing in the old hymn, Break Thou the Bread of Life, O send thy Spirit, Lord, now unto me, that he may touch mine eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word, and in thy book revealed, 
I see the Lord. So we see God in the pages of Holy Scripture. And then, of course, primarily, we see God in Jesus Christ. God became man and showed his great love toward us to live among us and die on the cross in our place. If you really want to see God, then you look at Jesus Christ, the God-man, as he is revealed in Scripture. As St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you really want to have the beatific vision, the sight of God? Then you look into the face of Jesus, for that is where God has most clearly revealed himself to us. And then, of course, one day, faith will become sight, and we will see with our physical eyes the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Before our Lord went to the cross, he prayed for his disciples in John 17, that prayer that we often call the high priestly prayer of our Lord. And in the course of that prayer, our Lord said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. This is the Lord's prayer for us, that one day we would be able to be in his presence and gaze upon his glory. As we sing in the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious, shall be the church at rest. That is where the church is headed. That is where all Christians are headed. We are headed toward the vision glorious to see God in the face of Jesus Christ. So then, it is possible to see God, but it is the sight of faith as we look at the created world, as we look in the pages of Holy Scripture, as we look at Jesus, we see God clearly revealed. And one day, we will see him in heaven. Now, in this beatitude, we see that there are certain people for whom this vision is reserved. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And once again, the word they is in the emphatic position. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and only they shall see God. Back in 1970, George Harrison, the former Beatle, released a song called My Sweet Lord which was not a Christian song, by the way, but a Hindu hymn in which he praises many of the Hindu gods. But in the course of the song, he says, I really want to see you, Lord, but it takes so long, my Lord. Does it really? Does it take so long? In Hindu mysticism, it does. But in Christianity, it doesn't. All that is necessary to see God is a pure heart. Now, how does one obtain a pure heart? In Acts 15.9, the Apostle Peter explains to his Jewish brethren that God had also received the Gentiles into his kingdom in this way. And God, which knoweth the heart, bare them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. You see, it is through faith we become pure in heart. This verse lets us know that we must be made pure in heart because none of us have natural purity of heart. We come forth from the womb speaking lies, the psalmist says. 
But when I look at this beatitude and then look at the way the Bible describes the heart, what chance do we ever have of being pure in heart and seeing God? Remember how Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Surely no one could ever meet this standard of purity of heart. It's a little discouraging, isn't it? When we read the Psalms, especially Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Now, if that is true, then it seems that none of us will ever ascend into the hill of the Lord and see God since we don't have clean hands and pure hearts. There would be no hope of being pure in heart unless there's a possibility of being made pure in heart by something more powerful than ourselves. And that is what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. God makes us pure in heart. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we are purified in the sight of God, even our hearts, that innermost center of our being. We are cleansed of our sins, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a pure heart, one that is concentrated wholly on God. And out of that imputed purity, that purity that God gives us because of what Christ has done, springs a practical purity, a real purity that we find in our hearts and that is manifested in our daily lives. As R.T. France says, this purity of heart describes one who loves God with all his heart, with an undivided loyalty, and whose inward nature corresponds with his outward profession. In other words, if we really are pure in heart in the sight of God, that purity will show itself in our daily actions. That is the kind of purity of heart that our Lord describes in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is this practical purity of heart? How can we know if we are pure in heart? In the Greek language, the word for pure is a word from which we get our word catharsis. We sometimes say after we have experienced certain things that it was cathartic. That is, it was cleansing, purifying. Some people have this feeling of catharsis after they have been in some kind of intense psychotherapy. Sometimes we have this feeling after a worship service when the feeling of cleansing and forgiveness sweeps through our souls. Sometimes even watching a play or a movie can be called cathartic when we feel like we have understood something that we never have before and we know that in some sense we will never be the same. So the word pure has something to do with being cleansed, but it is a cleansing so deep that there is no mixture of impurity. That is how the word was used in the Greek language. It was used to describe wine that was pure, metals that had been purified, all the dross was burned away, and what you had was a pure metal without alloy. In the same way, the Christian's heart has been purified. Now you may be saying, I come nowhere close to that description. You're discouraging me more and more. Now listen very closely to me because I want you to understand this. Purity of heart in this practical sense does not mean sinless perfection. David was a man who sinned against the Lord, and yet he felt that he could ascend into the hill of the Lord, and he did not hesitate to refer to himself as a man of integrity. In Psalm 26, 1, we read, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. We think that if we sin, 
it means that we are not people of integrity. But it is true that even the pure in heart will sin. There are people in the Bible who are described as being pure in heart, though they certainly were sinners. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.22, St. Paul told Timothy, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So there is such a thing as praying with a pure heart. But how can that be when we see so much sin in our hearts? Think of it like this. When we speak of purity of heart, we are primarily thinking of sincerity of heart. The Christian can say that though he sins and though he fails the Lord in many ways, nevertheless, he is sincere because his supreme desire is to become the person God wants him to be. We have this taught plainly in 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Today's English version translates that verse, Now that by your obedience to the truth you have purified yourselves and have come to have sincere love for your fellow believers, love one another earnestly with all your heart. Pure love is not faultless love, but it is sincere love, a love with all your heart. In that verse, you see sincere love, love out of a pure heart, described as being unfeigned love. We have several examples of the opposite of purity in heart in the scriptures. For example, in Hosea 10:2, the Lord describes Israel in this way, their heart is divided. That is the opposite of purity of heart. The pure heart is undivided. Devotion to God is its supreme desire. In James 4, we have a description of this divided heart where James admonishes the people, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Here we have Christian people trying to walk both sides of the street at the same time. They wanted to be Christians, but at the same time they loved the world, that system that was opposed to God. So what does James encourage these double-minded, these people divided in their hearts loyalty to do? He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts ye double-minded. There you have it. Double-mindedness is the opposite of purity of heart. Someone has said, the divided heart is a symptom of distraction, even dissipation of the soul, which desires one thing, but behaves as if it desired another. The spiritual equivalent of wanting to have our cake and eat it too. Modern psychology describes this as self-defeating behavior and lack of focus. The opposite of purity of heart is half-heartedness. Isn't it true that we are distracted by so many things in this busy, media-driven age? We say that we desire one thing, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but then we behave as though we desire other things more than that. We have another description of this condition in Jeremiah 3.10. And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. 
the whole heart is a pure heart. But in this so-called turning to the Lord, the people of Judah were insincere, or as today's English version has it, that Judah only pretended to turn to me. You can say that you are pure in heart when you can say that the greatest desire of your heart is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that is your great pursuit. Though you may fail in this quest from time to time, nevertheless you are sincere in your desire to achieve that goal. The chief characteristic of a pure heart is a loving sincerity. St. Paul wrote to Timothy, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. In other words, when we love with a pure heart, we have fulfilled the law. When we sincerely love God and when we sincerely love our neighbors with a sincere heart, we have kept the law of God. We are loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. Of course, there are times in our lives when it is obvious that we may not have been acting with a pure heart. We have been divided in our love and loyalty, and we have been insincere and hypocritical. What do we do then? We do what David did after he had committed his sin with Bathsheba. We cry with David, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It is a terrible thing to sin in such a way that your daily glorious vision of God is clouded and obscured. When you find yourself behaving in ways that do not seem consistent with purity of heart, go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes and lay the foundations once again. Become poor in spirit. Mourn over your failure. Become meek. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Be merciful. And soon you will find that this sincere, undivided love will return. And by faith, you will see God. Amen.